right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's great to have you guys. You want to turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be, continuing to go through Luke's gospel. So Luke chapter 8 is where we want to be. And we're going to look at verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Uh, But I'm just going to start by reading verse 22 to 25, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it together. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, and as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with wa- they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, and saying, "Master, master, we are perishing." And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, "Where is your faith?" And they were afraid, and they marvelled, saying to one another, "Who then is this that he commands even the wind and waves?" wind and water, that they obey him. And Father, we do pray again that you would speak to us and that you would bless our time in your word for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. So we're coming to the point in Luke's gospel where Jesus' popularity is increasing more and more and more. More and more people want to be near him, more and more people want to hear him preach, and even more so, people want to see him do his miracles. And, and, and we come to this point, and we see this actually in all three of the, of, of the main gospels, what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, all similar gospels. And all three of those gospels put all three of the stories that we're going to look at, look at tonight together. And they put those together because they're trying to um, he, you know, the gospel writers are trying to show that, that Jesus is doing something with his miracles. Yes, he's meeting needs, real needs. And we're going to talk about how important it is to see these things as real needs. But also he's wanting to show something about himself as he does these miracles. He's wanting to make sure that what, he, what the Father sent him to do is not misunderstood. And he's wanting to make sure that, that he can prove to those who would dare trust him. He would prove to them that, that they, can, he, they can trust him and they don't have to live in fear. And so what we're going to see in the three miracles we're going to look at is miracles that kind of move sort of from the outside into the more personal, from the uh, sometimes experienced to the always experienced. So, so looking at the story we just read, the first bit, of course, Jesus says in verse 22 to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. And so the fact that Jesus says, Here, here's what we're going to do, they, they don't hesitate, they follow after him, they say, okay, let's do this. He's saying, we're going to make it across. There's something implied in the statement, let's go across, that they're going to make it across. And they must have known that they were going to go into Gentile country, that they were purposely leaving uh, the more Jewish shores of Galilee and going to the Gentile section. They must have known this, and we're going to see this is important a little bit later on. But Jesus had a purpose for the journey. And so we see what happens, of course, as they begin to journey, Jesus falls asleep, as you do. I don't know if any of you guys like to sleep in the car. I love to sleep in the car, especially when I'm driving. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This is recorded, I know. 
No, but I love to sleep in the car. I fall, I fall asleep easily in the car. And I can just imagine Jesus with the kind of the waves up and down and up and down. And he's tired from lots of ministry. He falls asleep. But as he falls asleep, of course, there's this windstorm that comes, which is a, a very common thing in that, in that place. So it may not have been common in this circumstance, but it's a very common thing for these, the winds to kind of come down off the mountains that surrounded the Sea of Galilee and kick up waves that can go up to like 20 feet high on a lake. And so the, the, these guys, most of these guys were fishermen. They knew that this was a potential danger. And so as they're moving and the, the water or their boat is filling with water, as Luke explicitly says, they were in danger. This was a serious situation. And so they did the right thing. They, they cried out, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, we know in another gospel, I think it's Matthew's or Mark's gospel, they say, don't you care about us? You're just kind of sleeping and not caring. And I'm, I'm sure many of us have felt at times in our life, Jesus is sleeping. Where is he? What's he doing? But the truth is, what's going on here is Jesus is wanting to show them something about himself. And so when they cry out to him, he wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they cease. There's a total calm, perfect water skiing conditions. <laughs> and so this, this comes to pass, and, and what happens, of course, when this happens, they're blown away. And he says to them in verse 25, where, notice, where is your faith? And, 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 and Luke tells us that they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? And this is the question for these three miracles. Who then is this? What do these miracles tell us about this Jesus? Who then is this that he commands even the wind and waters and they obey him? Now we've seen twice already, haven't we, in Luke's gospel, where where uh, um, Jesus has, has said to somebody, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. He said that in a public way. And both those times, the religious leaders around Jesus who saw this happen were saying, who, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And of course, Jesus said that out loud to these guys to say something about who he was. And there's never indication in those two other, other situations where the disciples are going, how can he forgive sins? They have no problem with him forgiving sins, but when he does this supernatural miracle, when he shows himself to have power over creation, they're like, who is this guy? Now, here, here's what's interesting. What we see happening is, is that these guys are experiencing a real dangerous thing. I mean, Luke's clear about this. We don't want to miss this. They actually were in, in, in peril. This was a serious situation. Jesus is not denying it's a serious situation. He's saying, oh, stop your whining. It's not that big deal. It's just a few waves. That's not what he's doing. It is a serious situation. Jesus is not ignoring the seriousness of the storm, and he does not ignore the seriousness of the storms that we go through. He doesn't. What he's doing is, is he's going to overcome. He overcomes their experienced reality with his divine reality that he actually supersedes what they were experiencing by bringing in a new reality. That no matter how bad the storm gets, he's still over the storm. Now, keep in mind, again, that this was a real storm. We're going to come back to that idea in just a minute. So we get then to the second, the second scene. And, of course, uh, Luke makes it clear here that these scenes are connected. It says in verse 26, Then they sailed to the country of the uh, Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So he's saying they sailed right to this place, this Gentile place. 
And when Jesus had stepped out on the land, uh, there met him a man from the city who had demons, plural. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Keep that in mind, these demons and how they identify Jesus. They say, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many, time, many a time it had seized him. He, had kept, he, had, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss is, a, is kind of the holding tank where it's the kind of final place of judgment for demons. That, was the, that would have been the first century understanding of that. And so we think that's true. And now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herds rushed down to the steep bank into the lake and drowned. What a waste of bacon. <laughs> now, now, in all seriousness, there's lots of stuff about this section that we don't fully understand. And we need to be honest about that. We don't fully understand why. I mean, there's theories about these things, don't get me wrong, but we don't know for sure why the demons would want to go in pigs. Maybe because they're unclean spirits and this, these, these were unclean animals, could be that. We don't know why they would rush into the, the, the sea, the Sea of Galilee there, and drown the pigs. Maybe that set them free so they could go find someone else to possess. I mean, we don't know for sure. The, the scripture actually doesn't tell us. There's lots of speculation, interesting things, uh, that, but we just simply don't know. Now, now, because of that, there are some people, some modern scholars, who like to say this stuff is just a whole metaphor about how Jesus is stronger than evil. But it's really clear in the context that these demons are real evil spirits. This is not a metaphor just for overcoming evil. Jesus is doing, he's confronting these real evil spirits. And we have a picture here of this, this, this clash between limited demonic powers versus omnipotence. Omnipotence. That simply means all, the all-powerfulness of God. But I love the word omnipotence. It sounds like it means omnipotence. <laughs> it's a great word. This is the way we see the battle going on. And so I, I want to, as we're looking at this, as we think about what this means for us, that we would actually consider what, what I'm going to call the spectrum of demonic influences. So, so here, here's what we have. This should be something on the screen. Here's what we have. In these, in these verses, verses 26 to 33, we have an example, an extreme example of possession. What you have is, is, is many demons actually in one person. Now, this is a rare thing. It doesn't happen all the time. At least, it's not something that we've experienced. We asked in the first service how many people have actually experienced this. And there were a few people who, I don't think they were saying they were demon-possessed, but and there's probably a few of us who have experienced someone who was demon-possessed. But it's not as common uh, as, as we might think. But we need to understand on the sort of other end of the spectrum is what the Bible 
uh, talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's not going to be on the screen. You can look it up later. But there it talks about the God of this world, that's Satan, that he blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. In other words, listen, every single person, before they come to faith in Jesus, before they put their faith in Jesus, every single person has the devil doing this to them. Boom. There's demonic blocks to what they are to believe. In a sense, I put it this way, he assures, or those demonic spirits assure unbelief. They encourage unbelief. That's a demonic influence. Now, this might sound a bit odd to you. This might sound even a bit hocus-pocus to you, but this is the testimony of the Scriptures. And I, and I hope you guys realize this, that uh, here uh, in the West, specifically in secular Great Britain and Western Europe, a lot of people, probably most people, don't believe in evil spirits. But guess what? All over the world, the vast majority of the population believes in evil spirits. Now, some of that is superstition. Some of that is just they can't explain what's going on. But some of that's because they've experienced evil spirits. There are these beings called demons. Now, now, the reason I want to talk about the spectrum of demonic influences is because the truth is we can make one of two errors when it comes to demons. We can say, oh, that's just weird, hocus pocus, it doesn't mean anything, and ignore their existence, and we don't even recognize that the enemy's blinding us. But the other extreme can be we think everything's a, a possession. Gosh, I really want, I'm just craving a cigarette. That's the devil! Well, no, it's, you maybe have an addiction or you just crave a cigarette, you know? <laughs> and, and so our behavior can't always believe, we can't always say the devil made me do it. That, that's the other extreme, a demon behind every bush. But it's important for us, even as we look at this, as we look at this demon-possessed man, notably uh, an extreme case, there are things that he experienced that, that kind of show us sort of how the enemy influences, how demons influence us. And this is important if we're going to trust that Jesus is bigger than these things. One in verse 27, of course, it says that he uh, was, was for a, a long period of time running around without clothes on. Now, don't think a streaker at a football match, okay? This is a bigger issue. This has to do with, the, though there's something odd about that too, um, <laughs> This has to do with uh, the, the sense that, that often the enemy has, wants to encourage us to have a, a disregard for our personal dignity. That we just don't see ourselves as valuable. In fact, one of the things that is so worrying uh, about this age that we live in where everything is so visual, I mean, we, we're looking at screens hours and hours every day, and, and we see things, and especially when it comes to social media, Every guy is jacked, which just means he's muscular, and every, every woman is, is a swimsuit model. And you know what? In both cases, most of the time, like on Instagram, it's made up. It's fake. It's photoshopped. But we think we have to put ourselves out there. We have to, in a sense, display our nakedness to, to well, get people to look at us. And, and really what this is, is it is... It is a disregard for our personal dignity that we're meant to be those that are careful. Now, I know, listen, I know, in case you might be watching this, and this, you might be going, wait a second, John, I know the Bible, and Adam and Eve were naked too. Yes, they were. God created them, they were naked and not ashamed. And when sin came up, they tried to cover themselves. And then when they couldn't, their covering was insufficient, what happens is God makes covering them for him. And that is both a, 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 a real thing that God does and a metaphor for the fact that we need to be covered 
in the righteousness of Christ. But the, but the point is this, is that when, when we feel like, who cares about me? We just stop taking care of ourselves. We exploit our own selves. There's something demonic about that. But also we see in verse 29, look at verse 29 again. In verse 29, it talks about how um, uh, that sometimes these demons would drive this man into the desert. And of course, he lived in the tombs and stuff. Another issue of, of, of demonic action is to drive people towards isolation. It's not an accident that, uh, that the devil is called a roaring lion. Lion. When a lion is hunting, what does a lion do? Chases into a herd, hopes the weak go off by themselves, separates the weak. Why? Because that's dinner. That's the way it works. The enemy loves for us to be isolated. And I'll tell you, we've now had a year plus of forced isolation for, for valid reasons, for valid reasons. But we've seen the effects, haven't we? It's amazing how many people I've talked to over the last 12 months who are introverted. They like being alone. They like their kind of, they, they, they stress out. Oh, yeah. They come to Servants Church and they're like, gosh, you guys are so huggy and you're always wanting to talk all day long. And they, that kind of stresses them out. But but even they, who, who at first, maybe the first lockdown was, I'm kind of liking this isolation. It's good for me. It's, I like it. It's enjoyable. By the time they got to the second and the third, they're like, I'm not doing well. I'm not coping. Because we're not meant to be alone. Do you realize when God creates everything perfect, what's the first thing he says? It's wrong. It's not right. It's not good that a man be left alone. We're not meant to live in isolation. But this is one of the work of the enemy, is to push us to be by ourselves. But also, what do we see in verse 29? We see that this man, in the, with this demon-possessed man with supernatural, demonically inspired strength. And I just want to be clear, too, because if, if you can bench press a lot, it doesn't mean you're demonic. So let's not make sure we, we take this too far, okay? But what this does mean is, okay, this guy had some supernatural strength, and so much so that when, for probably his own good and for those around him, he's bound up, what happens? He just breaks free. No, I will not be bound, even if it's for my good. There's something demonic about the rejection of authority. And so it's important for us to see this because understanding what the enemy does, it's easy to look at this text and because it is such an extreme uh, example on the spectrum of what, how the enemy works. We can kind of go, well, yeah, as long as I'm not demon-possessed, I'm doing okay. But we need to recognize this is how the enemy works. He wants us to not believe. He wants to encourage our unbelief. He wants us to, to disregard our own personal dignity that we have as those who have been made in the image of God. He wants to drive us towards isolation, and he wants us to reject authority. I do what I want to do, is the mantra of the day. But here's what's amazing. This is not just about demonic powers. It's a showdown between these limited demonic powers and the omnipotence of God shown in Jesus. What happens? Verse 28 and 29 again. We, we see that um, what do these demons do? Uh, when, they, when they see Jesus, they fall down before him. Uh, the, uh, they force the man to fall down before him. And, and they cry out to him, Jesus, son of the most high, I beg you, do not torment me. They rightly recognize Jesus. In fact, interesting when they say, I beg you, do not torment me. The idea there is, is that these demons inside this man are recognizing that Jesus is the judge of all things. And he has the authority to say, that's it, you're done, and send them to the abyss. He will be the one when he returns to judge all things. 
So they're recognizing this. They're recognizing that he is the son of the most high God. Their theology is better than the disciples' theology at this point. So they're recognizing this, but they're also resisting this. And how do we know that we're resisting this? Because it says in the last part of verse 29, right? Um, I'm sorry, for the first part of verse 29, for Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. In other words, the demon says this, don't send me to be tormented after he says, get out of this guy. In other words, Jesus gives a command and they don't obey right away. So Jesus has all authority, but they still resist that authority. This is important. Verse 31 and 32. So what do they do? They beg Jesus instead to not depart, to command, not to command them to depart into the abyss, and so they want to say, we want to go into these pigs, right? And it says in verse, the end of verse 32, so Jesus gave them permission. In other words, the demons could only do what Jesus gave them permission to do. Now, this is, this is important. It's really, really important. Because the reality is this. Listen. Demons do resist the work of Jesus. They do. Okay? But they ultimately have to submit to what Jesus says. Now, this is really important because we want to, to see that this demonic activity, not just for this demon-possessed guy, but even in our own lives, demonic activity is real, just as real as the storm was for the disciples, just as real as it was for this man. Again, it's on a spectrum, but it's real. And just like Jesus is bigger than the deadliest storm, he's also bigger than a multitude of demons that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the worst storm. We don't have to be afraid of a multitude of demons. We don't have to be afraid when we're just feeling all this pressure to, I just, I just, it just seems so easy not to believe. We don't have to be afraid. We can cry out to Jesus. We don't have to be afraid when, we, when we're tempted to go, I can't trust any authority. We don't have to be afraid and say, no, Lord, you're the ultimate authority. I got to believe that you know what you're doing. I can trust in you. And when we're driven, well, we seem to be driven to just kind of, I just want to be among myself. I want to be isolated. We don't have to give in to that. We can say, Lord, you're bigger than this. Help me to be with, especially with your people, because that's what I need most. See, see the, the, the thing that I want us to see is that, that is what we, we read actually in 1 John 5, 19. This is what we read. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, we need to see that this entire world is under the sway of the evil one. It's God's world, don't get me wrong. He's created it, he's redeemed it, he's redeeming it. He will come back to it and fix everything, praise God. But there's still this enemy in rebellion to God who wants to bring as many people with him into that rebellion. We need to recognize this. And more than that, listen, we need to recognize that Jesus is bigger than that false power. This is important because sometimes it feels like the devil runs everything. You know what I'm talking about? It just feels like, gosh, we're such a small minority. And, and everyone else just kind of wants to do what they want to do. And it seems like, well, if that's the case, the enemy's winning, but he's not. And, and every demon, and there's multitudes of demons, for, but, but for every demon, there's two angels. That's good news. And so here's, here's the reality. Jesus has authority over them all. 
So we don't have to be afraid of these kinds of things. It, it's interesting to me how there's a, uh, every kind of decade or so, there's a renewed interest in ghosts and specters. Have you noticed this? I mean, it's always kind of been there, but it's kind of comes back, especially, it's, it's interesting to me that, that I've been hearing this, I guess there's some TV show that's going on one of the networks here about this. There's some haunted house somewhere. And I was listening to the, the, an interview on Radio 4 about this show, and the guy's going, yo, I don't know, man. I'm convinced something's there. Now, that could have just all been him making it up to get more reviews. I, I, I don't know. I'm not saying that he actually really saw something. But it's interesting to me that people who are just sort of seem to be dead secularists, materialists, there's nothing beyond the material universe. Oh, but there might be ghosts. Isn't that nuts? Or, or here's another one that really gets me. I don't, I don't, I can't believe in God. That's crazy. But there's definitely aliens. <laughs> there's not a single bit of proof. Not one. You guys ever heard of a guy named Carl Sagan? Yeah. Carl Sagan was a, a famous uh, cosmologist in, um, in the 1970s and 80s. He's someone who studies the universe, basically. And he was convinced. He was convinced that there was life on other planets. He, uh, he was a convinced um, that, that uh, materialist. He was convinced that evolution explained all things, and therefore, with that model, there has to be life on other planets. He was convinced of that. On his deathbed, the story goes, I don't know if this is true, but on his deathbed, the story goes that a Christian friend came to see him and just said to him, Carl, this is it. You're going to meet your maker. Why won't you just put your faith in him? He says, I don't want to believe. I want to know. But his entire life, listen, his entire life, Carl Sagan's, was based on belief. No, no, and no confirmation of that belief. This is what the enemy does. He blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. In fact, we have in the rest of this story, in verses 34 to 39, we see these two responses. These two responses to this power, this omnipotent power that Jesus displays. Look at verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, it, uh, fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man whom the de from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I want to talk about the man in a second, but we're talking about the townspeople first. They were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Now, I want you to let this sink in. Listen, let this sink into you. Here you have the situation where these guys have seen, they know this this man, I mean, this man was just out there. He was possessed by a multitude of demons. They know his reputation. They know, yeah, that, that crazy naked guy that runs up around the tombs, the guy that we can't keep in prison, that guy who breaks chains with his bare hands, that guy. Where did you see that guy? That guy was sitting calmly dressed, listening to his Jewish rabbi. Now, these are all Gentiles, by the way, too. Don't forget that. But they're going mad. And they must have thought, what kind of power is this? In fact, the, the indication here is they knew, they recognized this was a power they'd never experienced before, and they're afraid. And so what do they do? They say, Jesus, go away. 
I want you to think about this. They say, Jesus, go away. But what about this other man? First of all, we see that when Jesus delivers him from the demons, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Where is he? He's right before Jesus. He recognizes what Jesus has done for him. And rather than walk away, he says, I want to be with you. You who have this power to deliver me, I want to be with you. He's in his right mind. The, the, the early church fathers, the kind of first theologians of the first few centuries, used to talk about uh, the faith as the only sanity. That believing in Jesus is the only sane thing that we can do. Now, he, he, he's there, he's clothed, he's in his right mind, and we read in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had been had gone begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, notice, return to your home, declare how much God has done for you. So the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city, notice how much Jesus had done for him. This is very much on purpose. Luke is using this language on purpose. He wants the readers to see that this man saw that Jesus did for him what only God could do. So this Gentile man, Jesus says, you go back to your villages and you say, yep, I was that crazy guy who ran around naked and lived in the tombs. And look what happened to me now. I'm, I'm sane. Let's have a rational conversation. I'm dressed. You don't have to be afraid. I don't streak anymore. Let's have a conversation. Let me tell you who did this for me. Now, now I know that, that, that maybe some of you guys listening to this online, um, I know that there's, there's, uh, there are people who started to watch uh, Servant Church stuff during the pandemic, and you're still kind of there. You're, you're just kind of, uh, you're, you're investing through watching, and we appreciate that. We hope we're a blessing to you. But you might be feeling a little bit awkward about this. And maybe some of you here feel a little bit awkward about this. This whole idea of demons and spirits, it seems a little bit odd. And I'll be honest, it, it seems odd to me. It's not something I talk about all the time. But it's something I'm sure is true. And it's something I think we need to recognize because you guys, most of you guys have heard of the Apostle Paul. You know, he wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. And you, most of you know his testimony. He was once Saul, the religious leader who hated and persecuted Christians, right? Well, when Saul's telling his testimony, he's sharing his story in Acts chapter 26, he shares the bit when Jesus says to him, when he's first being converted to believe in Jesus, Jesus speaks to him and says these words. Listen, this is from Acts 26. He says, Jesus says, I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that, you, so that they may turn from darkness to light Notice, from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. That's what the resurrected Jesus told Paul. Here's what your ministry is going to be. Why? Because Jesus is bigger than a multitude of demons. In fact, he's so big that even in us proclaiming him, God's spirit, the spirit of Christ, will actually use that to set people free. 
maybe someone who's watching today is experiencing some very difficult things, and, and, and I'm not wanting to say for sure that they're demonic because I don't know who you are and I don't know what you're experiencing, but even if they are demonic, you need to know this. Jesus is bigger. He's bigger. You know, we, it's one of the things that's really important, and we're going to talk about the thing that most of us fear most, which is death and disease. But it's important for us to recognize that when, when we talk about mental health, that mental health is, is a physiological thing often. That we don't vilify, especially we don't vilify believers, but we don't vilify people because of their mental health struggles. I say that as someone who has his own bouts with depression. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that the enemy loves to harass people who are struggling with their mental health. This is one of the reasons it's been such a difficult time with the lockdowns. Because he loves to harass those who are like that. But man, it, if that happens, if we experience that, we can't forget why Jesus did this. He calms the storms to make sure his disciples know, yes, I am that God, the greater God. I'm over nature, I'm over creation. He delivers this Gentile man from possibly thousands of demons at once. Why? So he can say, listen, I am the one who will deliver you. I'm the one who sets free. I deliver from demonic activity. And now we get into the last two stories to show that Jesus is bigger than every disease and even death. Look at verse 40. It says, now, Jesus returned. Remember the, the, the people from the other side, the Gentile area said, go away. And so Jesus says, okay, fine, I'll go. And so he goes back across the Sea of Galilee. He's back into a Gentile area. So when he, the, he, Jesus returns, the crowd welcomed him. Yay, Jesus is back. For they were all waiting for him. Now remember, this is the height of his popularity. And so, they're, they're, so he's surrounded by a crowd, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogues. This is a respected Jewish leader. And he falls at Jesus' feet and implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So, so Jairus is, is this you know, leading man, the kind of, uh, as a ruler of the synagogue, he's the kind of man that other Jews that were, and these were mostly Jews here, of course, not all Jews, other Jews would have respected. He's the guy that they would go to and ask questions. And what happens? He comes, he's so desperate because his, his little girl is dying that he kneels before this rabbi Jesus who he hopes is actually the Messiah, who hopes he can do what he's heard he can do. And he says, please come. And Jesus says, okay. He's going to go with him. And the only thing hindering Jairus from getting his, this Jesus to his daughter is this increasing popularity, this huge crowd. So what happens? Verse 43. And there was a woman who had, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone, she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately uh, her discharge of blood ceased. Now, it, we don't know how, how she knew. She just had a sense that it happened. Or we don't really know, but she knew this had happened. 
And you have to think about what she's doing here. She's got no other hope for healing. Physicians couldn't help her. I love that Luke put that in there. Luke is a physician. Hey, even doctors couldn't help. Right? And so what happens is she's now risking, at minimum, the scorn of this mob if they recognize her as a defiled woman. Because having this flow of blood means she was ceremonially unclean. If somebody touched her, they would be ceremonially uh, unclean. So at, at minimum, they would scorn her. At, at worst, they could have a riot and stone her. So she's really risking everything. Why? Because she's desperate. And so when she finally reaches Jesus, she's immediately healed. Now, what's interesting about this is you look through the scripture, there's really nothing in the scripture that would indicate that if you touch somebody's robe, you're going to get a healing. There's almost like a bit of superstition here. But she just knows this guy is the guy who can do it. And so what happens in verse 45? Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, "Uh, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you? Hello? But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, this is, we need to understand, this is not so much about what Jesus didn't know. Okay, oh, I don't know who touched me. Or like he's having some weird mystical experiences. Sometimes the movies, of Hollywood movies of Jesus, he's kind of like, I am Jesus. My power flows. And he's just like this strange Jesus on LSD or something. And, and that's not the Jesus of the Bible. So this is not so much that he couldn't know or he didn't know. This is about who he wanted to know. Specifically, who he wanted to know him. And so what happens? Verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. I wonder when he says, who touched me? If he's staring right at her, who touched me? (laughs) She comes trembling, falling down before him. And I love this. Declares in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd become immediately healed. And you can imagine the people going, yuck! She was defiled. She touched us and she pushed through the crowd. But she's telling her story. She's telling her, this is what happens. I thought if I could just touch his robe, this is not even good theology. You know who would have known it wasn't good theology? Jairus. But you know who would have heard this testimony? Jairus. And so what happens? Listen, Jesus says to her, verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith is literally your faith has saved you. I love this. I love this because what you have here is is she 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 shares her story. And what Jesus does is didn't just go, hey, that's great news. I'm really glad. See ya. He confirms to her her position as a child of God. Here she spent 12 years, 12 years, and it's not an accident that the daughter was 12 years old and this woman was 12 years, the whole lifetime of this child. In fact, I can imagine when she, when she says, I was 12 years, that, that Jairus is going, yeah, my daughter's 12 years old. Jesus, can we get past this? Can we go? And I can imagine even more so when Jesus says to, to this woman, Daughter, your faith to save you. That Jairus can't help but think about, my daughter's dying. 
See, this is important for us to recognize because God is doing something here. Yes, he's meeting the need of this defiled woman, but he's showing something about himself. Jesus is showing something about himself, about how just how big he actually is. So what do we see next? We've seen this, this defiled woman who, who's been declared a daughter. Now we're going to see a desperate father who's learning to believe. Because right when he says, your daughter has made you well, then verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Oh. I wonder if when this was said, if the whole audience, just the whole crowd just goes, oh, man. Remember, this is Jairus, ruler of synagogue, probably well-respected. Oh, how grieved they probably were for him, how grieved he was. He had lost all hope, and here he is losing all hope. And Jesus, in verse 50, on hearing this, answers him saying, Do not fear, only believe she will be well. Now this would have been considered a mock, like a mockery to say such a thing, an insensitive thing to say if he hadn't just done what he did. And so it says in verse 51, And when he came to... Jairus' house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all who were weeping and mourning for her, uh, 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 but he said, uh, but to, and, I'm sorry, and all who were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now this is important because What's happening here is Jesus is not naive. He's not denying that this little girl is actually dead any more than he was denying that the, the storm was deadly or the demon-possessed guy was in bad shape. He's not denying the severity of the situation. He's just saying, in my, from my perspective, this is a short-term thing. And so what does he do? Verse 54, and taking her by the hand... He called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. I love this because what you see here is, is Jesus basically, when he's mocked, you know, you're crazy, dude. She's dead. Well, why, you, why, you, why would you say something like this? And I, I wouldn't think this is like hilarious laughter. This is that kind of like, you're like, are you serious? Like just almost like a disgusted kind of lack of effort, like, oh man, come on. But he ignores the mockers and he does what only God can do. He gives this little girl back her spirit. Now here's what's really interesting as well. This happens, and I can imagine how blown away Jairus is. I, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, he probably took turns reading uh, the, the scrolls of scripture as, as well as arranging things. He probably took turns uh, sharing what God would say from his word. And I can imagine going, I got to put this in a sermon, man. This is amazing. <laughs> but what happens in verse 56? Her parents were amazed, but Jesus charged them that, uh, to tell no one what had happened. Isn't it interesting? So when the Gentile, the demon-possessed Gentile guy gets delivered, he says, go tell everyone in your town. But when these guys get their daughter brought back from the dead. He says, don't go tell anybody. Why? Because he, does, he wants to make sure. He's kind of postponing their witness so that he's not misunderstood. 
Because remember, the whole purpose of this is so that people's ideas about who he is would be rightly formed. And we're going to see when we get into chapter 9 that the pinnacle of that is his death and resurrection. I want to ask you a couple questions, something to think about. We've seen in, in these three miracles, sort of starting from the outside, a, a rare experience of a supernatural disaster, like a, they're, they're going to drown in a boat. Kind of a rare thing. To, to then, this demon possession, maybe even, uh, not, maybe not quite as rare, but still rare. And then to now this death and disease, which all of us, ultimately face. And, and all these things brought great fear. The disciples were afraid they were going to drown. Understandably. The townspeople were afraid of the demon-possessed guy, and then when he was delivered, they were afraid of Jesus. Jairus was afraid that, that he had, his only chance in Jesus was lost. The woman with the flow of, of blood for 12 years was afraid that this was going to be her last chance. What are you afraid of? Seriously, what are you afraid of? Because Jesus is bigger than what you fear. I don't know if you're afraid of of some sort of natural consequence that might come on the earth. There's a lot of people that are afraid. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's, uh, there's a radical increase in, in, in depression and anxiety among children. This is before the lockdown. This was before COVID. There was a radical increase among children, like preteens, because they felt like the world will be destroyed before they're old enough to enjoy it. They're afraid of the consequences of their parents and grandparents towards the environment. What are you afraid of? Are you, are you afraid that you, you just, you can't discern, you don't know when the enemy's lying to you and so you're going to just be stuck? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of the disease that's ravaging your body? Are you afraid of death? I think, I think if we're honest, one of the things that COVID shown us is how much the fear of death grips people. Again, this is, there's no condemnation in these fears. These are what all of us as human beings experience. The point is not to say you're bad because you're afraid. That's not the point. All of us experience these different kinds of fears. The point that Jesus is showing is he's bigger than our fears. This is why he did these miracles. So let me ask you two other quick questions before we sing this song. Is Jesus small enough to understand your fears? When I mean small enough, do you see the God of the universe in the person of Jesus? Because that's what the Bible says about him. That God who was in Christ reconciled the world to himself. That the creator of the universe shows himself through Jesus so much so that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he came down to us. He came to our level. He lived the same kind of life that we live. Do you see him that small, quote unquote? Do you see him that accessible? 
but he understands your fears. And is Jesus big enough to help? Maybe you go, yeah, I have no problem with seeing Jesus as the man, as the one who, who came and maybe even was sent by God, but I don't know. Can he really help me? Well, I'd, I'd be willing to bet whatever you're afraid of fits in one of these categories. Take this time to, to say, Lord, these are the things I'm afraid of. Help me to see how Jesus is bigger than these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us online, whether this was, uh, you were doing it live or you're doing it, watching it later. And thank you guys so much for coming. Really glad you could be here. Uh, we pray you have a blessed week and we'll see you soon. God bless.